what's up with Jesus and all his liberal talking points? Have you heard this before? So let me explain. There's, there's a very troubling trend among right-wing, politically motivated evangelical Christians. In their quest for power, a growing group of people are actually rejecting some of Jesus' basic teachings as liberal, weak, or woke. Now, this was best described by Russell Moore. He's the current editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, and he was also a top-level leader among the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical, Protestant evangelical denomination. So in an interview with NPR earlier this year, here's what he said. I've had multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Parenthetically, in their preaching, they would say something like, turn the other cheek. And to have someone come up to them after and say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And what was alarming to me is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus, the response would not be, oh, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. And when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us Christians, then we're in a crisis. So Jesus is too liberal for some far-right Christians. And so I'm really confused at this point. Is Jesus Republican or Democrat? Now, in the 2020 election, 75 to 80 percent of white Protestants voted Republican for Trump. In the same election, 80 to 90 percent of black Protestants voted Democrat for Biden. So is Jesus Republican or Democrat? He's neither. And he's both. You see, back in 2020, the late pastor Tim Keller, one of my faves, um, he was doing an interview with Carrie Newhoff, also one of my faves. And here's how he captured this so well. My reading of the Bible says that Christians ought to be sold out for racial justice, that all races are equal, all in the image of God. They should be deeply concerned about the poor and the marginalized. They should be pro-life, and that they should believe, at least for Christians, that sex should only be between a man and a woman in marriage. The early church was marked by these four things. Two of those look very conservative, and two of those, very liberal. See, Jesus has always defied being categorized into a single political party. In his day, he didn't sign, he didn't side with the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the Romans or the, the Jewish zealots. He was there to usher in a new kingdom. And likewise, today, the real Jesus still refuses to be pigeonholed Republican or Democrat. He has his own kingdom, and it's not America. So what do we do? Well, for that, I want to return to that Tim Keller interview and read something he had said shortly after that previous quote. 
Here's what he said about the question, what should we do? So right now, what's happening is, since those four things are never combined in any political party, in any other institution, other than Catholic social teaching and biblical Christianity, there is enormous pressure everywhere in this country for churches to major in two of them and get quiet on the other two. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about all four. All four of these are, two, are, are all four biblical values. Too liberal, too progressive. And chances are you're going to disagree with me on at least one of these. Racial justice, the sanctity of life, care for the poor, and biblical sexual ethics. See, for 2,000 years, the Christian church has consistently and near unanimously advocated for all four of these. Why? Because the Bible advocates for all four of these. And that's why River Life advocates for all four of these. Now, if you find yourself disagreeing with me, that's okay. You can still be a part of the River Life family. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you with a question. Are you believing what you want to be true? Or are you believing what the Bible says is true? So let's see what the Bible says about these things. Now, obviously, this, is, this could be an entire two-month series. So think of this more as a quick flyover versus a deep dive. We'll start with racial justice. A decidedly Democrat issue. From start to finish, the Bible emphasizes the importance of justice, racial equality, and love for all people. Genesis 1 establishes that every human has inherent value because they are made in the image of God. The Old Testament law contained multiple commands to protect foreigners and treat them with kindness. God reminded the Israelites to do this because they were once foreigners in Egypt. They were once the ethnic minority. The Old Testament prophets routinely admonished the Israelites for superfluous religious acts while ignoring justice for the poor and the oppressed. Jesus' teachings, things like the Good Samaritan. Challenge racial prejudice. <clears throat> My water. <clears throat> so Jesus challenged racial prejudice. He regularly interacted with non-Jewish men and women. And shockingly to his Jewish listeners, he often praised the Gentiles for having stronger faith than his own Jewish peers. The early church was challenged for its prejudice and its racism against non-Jews, like the Greek widows in Acts 6, or Cornelius and his family in Acts 10. Paul taught in Galatians 3 that ethnic, gender, and class distinctions are all 
subordinated under being one in Christ. And finally, Revelation. The redeemed, restored church is seen made up of every tribe, people group, and language. The whole council of scripture from start to finish is undeniable in its advocacy for justice, equality, and racial inclusion. While unanimously condemning racism, prejudice, and ethnocentrism. That's why it's so disheartening that right now, there are bills across the country sponsored by Republican legislators and supported by Christians that are designed to silence black history, sanitize white history, and deny the evils of racism. Let's go to the next one. Let's talk about the sanctity of life. Now, here's how the Alliance Statement on the Sanctity of Life describes it. This is a document that our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, has put out to talk about this topic. And this short paragraph in the document is supported by 13 Bible references. So here's how it describes in the opening paragraph. Human life is created by God and is good. Since we are uniquely created in the image of God and formed by God, we hold to the sanctity of all human life. As best as we understand, human life begins at conception. It also lasts beyond death into eternity. God gives life and breath to everyone, calling us to value equally the dignity of every individual life in its entirety, which compels us to love and have compassion for all people of the world. That's our denomination. See, because of all of this, the Bible is unwaveringly pro-life. But unfortunately, this phrase has been co-opted by a very specific political action group. And so the, the, I appreciate some of the Christian thinkers lately who have started to introduce a new term over the last year or two. And to swap it out, I could say this. The Bible unwaveringly supports human flourishing and a culture of life. Now, does that include... Does that include reducing the number of babies killed by abortion? Absolutely. But it's a lot more than that. And that's what Republicans get wrong. Pro-life is much, much more than simply pro-birth. To describe what this looks like, I'd like to read a rather lengthy quote from Father James Martin. He's a Jesuit priest and a New York Times bestseller. And this is from an article he wrote in 2017. I am pro-life. That means that I'm also pro-social justice. That means that I am not only for the dignity of the human being from the moment of conception, but also for the dignity of the human being until the natural end of life. For life does not end at birth. A, a person who is truly pro-life is pro all life, pro every stage of life, pro every stage of life for every person, for all life is sacred because all life is created by God. 
That means that I support anything that helps a person live a full, healthy, and satisfying life in every part of the world. So I am for care for the poor, for a living wage, for affordable health care, for adequate housing, for a humane work environment, for equal pay for women, for generous child care, for the support of the aged and the infirm. That means I support caring for the marginalized among us, the refugee, the migrant, the displaced person, the homeless, the unemployed, the person with disabilities, the single mother, women who are abused, minorities of every kind who are persecuted, and all those left out, mocked, lonely, ignored, and frightened. That means I am against torture because it is an affront to human dignity. I am against the death penalty, the most serious affront to an adult life. I'm against abuse and mistreatment in prisons. I'm against war as a way to solve problems. That means I am pro-peace, pro-justice, and pro-reconciliation. So yes, I am pro-life, pro-all life. The real Jesus refuses to be boxed into a single political party or a single political cause. And this guy gets it. Let's talk about care for the poor. Now, I would argue that the Christian church has been the greatest agency for caring for the poor in all of human history. In fact, prior to Jesus, the poor were largely dismissed. And it was the Christian church that fundamentally changed the way eventually the entire world saw the poor. Now let me tell you about three ways that the Bible talks about the care for the poor. First, is the general command to care for the poor. There are four vulnerable groups that the Bible talks about over and over again, Old and New Testament combined. And they are the poor, widows, orphans, and foreigners. Because in that world and ours, those are four of the groups that can be most exploited by those with wealth and power. And those four groups, the Bible consistently commands, they are to be fed, they are to be cared for, they are to be protected. We see it in Old Testament law, the prophets, Jesus' teachings, and the early church and the letters of Paul. So that's one, the general command. Now, there's also specific commands, specific commands that the rich and powerful should not exploit the poor. Think of this as economic justice. Here are just a few. The rich who lend to the poor should not charge interest. Employers who, should, they, who employ the poor or day laborers, they should not abuse those without rights or without power. People should not get rich off oppressing the poor. Shop owners shouldn't cheat the poor by overcharging or, excuse me, or using unfair scales. 
judges shouldn't exploit the, exploit the poor in court. And the rich shouldn't discriminate against the poor. Those are all commands taken directly out of the Bible. Many of which are repeated multiple times. Now there's one more. There's one more way the Bible talks about the poor. And this, this is really special. There are multiple verses that draw a direct connection between how you treat the poor and how you treat God and Jesus. And it's, and it's not, just, not just Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. It started way back before that. So listen to some of these Proverbs. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the poor honors God. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. And whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So when Jesus taught, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, he intends us to take that very seriously. So commands like these are so pervasive all throughout Scripture that no Christian who says they follow Jesus and the Bible could possibly Ignore the needs of the poor. That's why it's so disheartening right now to see Christian Republican legislatures consistently vote down measures that would make a real difference in alleviating poverty. And even worse, we see white evangelicals here in America express outright hostility to caring for the poor so far away from the counsel of Scripture. Let's talk about the fourth one, biblical sexual ethics. Now, I'm only going to say a little bit on this one because next week I'm preaching a whole sermon on it. Next, next week's question is, how should we think about LGBTQ plus issues? So I'm doing a whole sermon on this. So here I'm just going to hit this lightly. And... But I will start with this. The Christian church has consistently and without exception until the last 50 years has understood the Bible as teaching Christians that sex should only be between a man and a woman in marriage. There's just no way around that. Here are some of the things that the Bible teaches about this. It matters that creation was male and female. That marriage is a lifelong covenant, not just a social contract. That God has a very narrow view of sex. Our world has a very wide view of sex. And, it, and that sex is a unique aspect of the marriage covenant. The marriage bed is to be kept pure and holy. And the New Testament routinely describes this phrase, sexual immorality, which in Greek is a term that refers to 
any sexual activity outside of marriage. The New Testament routinely defines this as sin. Now that's it for now. Come back next week or watch online for a whole lot more. But I will say one more thing about sexual ethics. Remember the idea of human flourishing? That the Bible and God is for human flourishing. There's an interesting thing when you look at the research into relationships and sex. Nearly all of the research for years, for decades, has pointed to one thing. That the Judeo-Christian view of sex and relationships leads to the highest levels of human flourishing. The, the numbers don't lie. The research has shown that over and over again. So there is a lot that our current culture is advocating for when it comes to sex and relationships that research shows does not lead to human flourishing. I think God knew what he was doing. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with racial justice, the sanctity of life, care for the poor, and biblical sexual ethics? And especially, what do you do if you disagree with one or two of those? See, believing in all four of these will mean that you will not fit into any of the political or social activist definitions in our society right now. All four of these, they don't fit anybody's agenda. They don't fit anybody's political bills. And you're likely to actually upset people from both sides. See, but this is what Scripture teaches. Because it's what God values. Now, I have an additional resource for you today. If you'd like to read more on these, I've actually compiled some of the Alliance state statements on things like racial justice, sexuality, and the, sanction, the, the sanctity of human life. I've compiled those into one packet, and it's out on the Connection Center, though. I printed out a, a handful of them. If you'd like to read more, look more deeply into the scriptures, I just didn't have time to cover all of those scriptures. But if you'd like to, you can grab one on your way out in the lobby. And I'll close with this. If you're a Christian, this reality of God valuing all four of these, too conservative and too liberal, this has wide-ranging implications, first for your faith, but also second for your politics. So I want to leave you with five implications that this has for you. First, a Christian can belong to and vote for either political party. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise. Second, we are all selective about our biblical values that are important to us. Every one of us. We are all selective. And you can't say that somebody else is wrong because they don't share your top values. Third, 
However you vote, and as I'm sure you know, we're entering into the next year of an election cycle here. So however you vote, you will contradict some core biblical values. Unfortunately, our political system does not allow you to vote for all four of these values. So as you think about candidates, bills, local or national, just acknowledge that you will, no matter how you vote, you will be ignoring some of the biblical values. And as a result, that should make us all very politically humble. One of the, the sorts of people I hate most in politics are the arrogant Christians who believe that their cause and their party has a monopoly on God. And unfortunately, there are a lot of them, and that number is growing. Research has shown that that number has grown in the last few years. But this really should make us all very politically humble. Because those people who really disagree with you, they might be advocating for biblical values as well. Number four, your political affiliation must be subsumed under Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you can't have it, but Jesus has to be above your political affiliation Jesus has to be above the causes you want to fight for, the votes you place. And then lastly, here's a little bit of a hot take, okay? The stronger your political beliefs, the more likely you are to be moving away from Jesus. The stronger your political beliefs, it doesn't mean you can't have political beliefs. But the stronger your beliefs, the stronger your allegiance to a single party or a single person, the stronger those beliefs, the more you are going to be moving away from Jesus. Now, how can I say that? Because our political system does not allow a person to value all four of these and fit. So the deeper you go into one political party, the less your kingdom will look like Jesus' kingdom. And the more it will look like a party platform, a candidate, a president. Jesus is neither Republican nor Democrat. And he's both. Jesus has values that span across the political aisle. He's neither conservative nor progressive, and he's both. God's values demand allegiance to his kingdom, not a country, a cause, a candidate, or a political party. So I want to be a church that values all four of those. And if it means that people on both sides get upset with me or us, I'm okay with that. People got pretty upset with Jesus also. 
Now, I'm no Jesus. But I would love to see River Life be a place that advocates for the things that God advocates for. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. God, this is hard. We live in a world that gets harder and harder to value what you value. So I pray first that our heart breaks for the things that break your heart. For the poor. For the marginalized. For the broken relationships and broken sexualities. For marriages. For people who are hurting and oppressed. Lord, help us to somehow advocate for all of this. Somehow reflect your kingdom. Be people that build your kingdom, not the American kingdom, not the Hmong kingdom, not our own personal kingdom. But let us build your kingdom. Let it come on earth as it is in heaven. So align our hearts over these next couple songs here align our hearts with you break through the stubborn parts that the things we really want to be true if they are not aligned with you change our minds break our hearts holy spirit convict so that we can love what you love god and i thank you that you're gracious and you are patient with us I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.